evening, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. We're continuing our study of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and now we've come to verses 27 to 30, and what we're going to see here is there's a shift. Paul has sort of been reviewing his a perilous situation, and now he turns his attention uh, more directly to the Philippians and uh, their circumstances. And as you might remember, uh, Paul has been in prison for the sake of Christ. Uh, but he is, as uh, one commentator has put it, he's the optimistic uh, prisoner. Maybe that stood out to you. And Paul's not simply trying to keep a, a, a stiff upper lip here, uh, but uh, he is, in his imprisonment, he has a, a perspective that looks through his sufferings through the lens of the gospel. Uh, and he's wanting to impart this uh, to the Philippians as well. And so that's why he's uh, shared with uh, them how his troubles are serving to advance the gospel, uh, his, his uh, hopes and his joys, whether he lives uh, or dies. And so Paul's laid all, the, all of this out uh, so that we can adopt a gospel perspective uh, for ourselves in, in our trials. So now we're going to see, uh, as Paul turns his attention to the Philippians, how he helps them navigate the hostility that they are going through on account of their faith in Christ. So, uh, starting at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, um, in 1 Corinthians, uh, we're urged to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, to be strong, and to let all that you do be done in love. And these are good words as we come to this text in Philippians because we have need to be strengthened according to your word that we might uh, stand firm and we have need of your spirit to help us um, manifest the love and unity which is ours in Christ Jesus. And so as I preach, I ask that you would help me to communicate these truths clearly and as they ought to be communicated. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as we come under your word, that you would help us to hear it and delight in it, that you would show us specific ways that we need to apply it, and that you would use this for the strengthening of the testimony of your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is a good citizen? Uh, that was the question uh, that Jana Weersma's Classical Conversations class uh, asked me uh, last week. Uh, maybe some of you are, are in that class, and so you were part of the discussion, and you heard my answer. I'm not going to share that answer here. There's uh, too many people who could point out the flaws in it, I'm sure. But uh, it's a particularly timely and appropriate question, of course. Uh, first and most obviously, uh, that's the case because this has been a significant uh, week 
uh, in American civic life, with all the pomp and circumstance uh, and ceremony around the inauguration that took place in, in Washington, uh, D.C., all Americans, whether your hopes uh, feel like they're rising or falling, uh, are reminded this week in a particular way that you're an American citizen. So citizenship is on the brain. The second reason, and less obvious, that this is a timely question was because uh, in the Lord's providence, it relates well to our passage this evening. Our passage this evening begins, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, while this translation accurately conveys the the, uh, main point or the heart of of, uh, what Paul is trying to say here, it obscures that Paul is using a word uh, picture here that would have a particular resonance with the Philippians. The Greek word which Paul uses for uh, this idea of letting your manner of life uh, be a certain way or conducting yourselves in a certain way, as other translations put it, uh, is a word closely associated with the idea of citizenship. So outside of the Bible, it's used to speak of being a citizen or acting uh, like a citizen. Now, this was a concept that would have uh, mattered in a particular way to the people at Philippi. Now, Philippi is located in, in northern Greece, and it had been made a, a Roman uh, colony about 100 years uh, before Paul wrote this letter. Uh, and at that time, um, many of the people there were granted citizenship. Now, this was a big deal uh, uh, at that time. In this country, citizenship is uh, granted by virtue of the 14th Amendment uh, to anyone who is, is born here, uh, like my children. But in the Roman Empire, you didn't just become a citizen by being born in the Roman Empire. The rights and obligations that came with being a citizen of the Roman Empire were more elusive. Uh, Some people uh, could inherit citizenship uh, um, by birth through their parents, as Paul had, as we see in Acts 22. Uh, There also would have been at Philippi many people who had um, earned their citizenship through military service uh, to the Roman Empire. But citizenship was a significant point of pride. It wasn't something uh, that you just took for granted. This is why, for example, uh, it's a frightening surprise to the officials at Philippi uh, when they learned that Paul and Silas, whom they'd beaten and imprisoned without due process, were actually Roman citizens. And so it's worth noting in our passage, when Paul turns Uh, to this, uh, from his report uh, on his own situation to the Philippians, that he picks up an image that would have caused their ears to perk up and maybe would have caused them to to sit up uh, a little bit in their chairs. So Paul is calling the Philippians to live, uh, to carry out their citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, before we go any further, it's important that we consider for a moment what we mean by this word gospel. It's a word that we use a lot uh, as if you've been uh, uh, listening or uh, um, uh, participating in Pastor Dale's uh, series through Galatians on the pure gospel, right? That's we've been giving our attention to this this idea. Uh, But we don't want to take anything for granted here because if we're supposed to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's important we're clear on what the gospel is, whether you've been in church your whole life or whether uh, you're visiting tonight for the first time. So the gospel is a word that means good news. And here is, is a, a quick summary of what the gospel is. 
The gospel is God's message to sinful humanity that by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, who has died and been raised from the dead for sinners, we can escape the condemnation of God and be restored to full fellowship with Him. So it's a message from God concerning Jesus for sinners, which is all of us, promising rescue and restoration by grace alone. And it's demanding a response of faith in Christ. And by trusting in Christ, as the Philippians had, they had exchanged their passports in a manner of speaking. They had been involved in a kingdom transfer. They had been transferred out from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. And as the Philippians placed their faith in Christ, it resulted in this exchange of citizenships. For this reason, Paul is going to speak later in the letter of speaking of, of our citizenship being in heaven. Now, it's important to realize that this this exchange here, this citizenship exchange, uh, was a result of God's initiative in Christ. That this citizenship had already been bestowed upon the Philippians. So when Paul says here to live out our heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's not saying that we need to act or behave in a certain way in order to get in, or like we might be paying off the, the security guard at the port of entry. Instead, Paul is saying, live your life in a manner consistent with the kingdom to which you already belong. But what does it look like to live a life that reflects well our heavenly citizenship? We might have a sense of of what it means to be a good American citizen uh, or a good uh, Canadian citizen, but what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of our heavenly citizenship? Well, Paul in this passage, he gives us the answer at least part of the answer. So I want you to listen carefully so you you catch Paul's point here. That since God has graciously made us citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, the church is called to reflect that citizenship by standing united and standing courageously in her sufferings for Christ. So worthy uh, uh, gospel citizenship will entail unity in the gospel and courage for the gospel both of which Paul's hoping that he will see or played out or hear reports of very soon. So first, let's look at this unity in the gospel. Because Paul writes that he hopes that he will hear that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As we read that, notice the emphasis that's clearly there on oneness, being in one spirit. Now, this might refer to being uh, of the same attitude. It might refer to being in the one Holy Spirit. Uh, There's some some question on that, but either way, uh, the main point of emphasis is the same on that idea of unity, that we're to be with one mind, having the same way of thinking, being uh, or striving side by side. So Paul says that gospel citizenship is meant to manifest itself in a visible unity. And he makes this point, again, by uh, using an illusion that would have been familiar to his audience, that would have made sense given the background of the church at Philippi. He's already uh, used this idea of of citizenship, alluding to that, and now he's going to draw on this imagery of combat, knowing that there are likely a number of retired military people uh, in the congregation. And that's what we see when Paul says, stand firm 
in one spirit with one mind striving uh, or strive side by side uh, for the faith. Standing firm implies opposition to the gospel. It implies resistance. It implies conflict. And standing firm requires courage, intestinal fortitude, as the the sports commentators say. It takes guts, right? Paul's urging the Philippians that when it comes to the gospel, they are to dig in together and not give an inch. I recall uh, reading last year Hampton Side's account of... um, one of the most awful battles in the Korean War. And Sides tells the story of a Fox Company, a U.S. Marine group, uh, in November 1950. So they were uh, stuck in minus uh, 30 degree weather. Uh, Fox Company, there was about uh, 246 uh, guys in this company, and they were charged to keep open a single pass so that 10,000 uh, U.S. Marines could escape to safety. You see, because they were surrounded by, I think it was like 100,000 enemy troops. And though wave after wave of enemy soldiers would advance on Fox Company's uh, position, and though three out of every four men from the company would be killed, wounded, or captured, together they stood their ground against the enemy. As a unit, they stayed together. They wouldn't be pushed back. They, they, They didn't scatter you can imagine that while the bullets continued to fly, that their energy was completely devoted to holding their ground. These men, when they're in a foxhole, were not going to uh, squabble over minor past grievances with each other as the enemy pressed to take their position. They had to act as one if they were going to successfully hold their position, which, against all odds, they were able to do uh, so that the rest of the men could um, escape to safety. And that's how Paul sees the predicament of the church. The Philippians were not only uh, facing the hostility from their opponents, but they were uh, seeing as this is a spiritual battle, uh, they were facing the spiritual forces of evil, seeking to destroy the church. And as heavenly citizens, Paul calls them to live in a manner worthy of that citizenship by standing firm together in unity. But, And I think this is an important point to make. Paul doesn't see the Christian calling as merely defensive posturing. We aren't just to to huddle in our foxhole uh, to outlast the onslaught of the world, the flesh, and the devil. No, as citizens of the gospel, we're also called to engage the enemy, to, to be on the offensive. So with this same unity, Paul calls the Philippians to strive side by side for the faith of the faith of the gospel. So the image that that Paul has in mind here uh, would be that of of the Roman legionnaires. So you might uh, be able to have this picture in your mind. Uh, They were uh, those infantrymen uh, who would carry uh, long shields and they would march together in close formation with their shields locked together, sort of formed as as a moving wall as they they marched uh, toward their objective. They they marched on their, their target. They were soldiers striving side by side toward their aim. Paul uses the same word of of striving uh, later in the letter in Philippians 4.3 when he he speaks of two women, Judea and Syntyche, who labored, struggled, strove with him for the gospel. Now they weren't fighting uh, with the sword, they weren't fighting with uh, uh, weapons, uh, but they they were uh, uh, um, carrying out their ministry with the word of God. They were serving, they were teaching, they were evangelizing, discipling, preaching. 
They were laboring. They were striving together to see the gospel of Christ advance in the world through their ministry together. They were contending for the faith together. Now, working to carry out the Great Commission together was another way that their unity in the gospel manifested itself and matured. I think it's often been the experience of the church that when her members stop striving uh, um, with each other, engaged in the work of, of ministry, engaged in mission together, the church starts striving against each other. To this point, John Calvin says, this is the strongest bond of unity when we have to fight together under the same banner. For this has often been the occasion of reconciling even the greatest enemies. I don't want to uh, belabor the, the point about unity here because Paul's going to speak about the importance of unity and how we get unity um, uh, in chapter 2. And so that will be our next message. But what I want to note here in anticipation of that is that the first aspect of, uh, of living in a manner worthy of our heavenly citizenship is to be concerned about the unity of the church. Now, secondly, after Paul calls them to maintain their unity in the gospel, Paul says that worthy heavenly citizenship will involve courage for the sake of the gospel. We see this in verse 28 when he says that they shouldn't be frightened in anything by their opponents. Now, we've already noted that this command to stand firm implies conflict and opposition. Now Paul's more explicit here uh, uh, as he speaks about the Philippians contending uh, against and not being frightened by their opponents in the gospel. So these opponents uh, um, were probably some combination of, of pagan Gentiles, uh, the locals in Philippi, uh, but they also could have included uh, some of, of uh, some Jewish false teachers, some of the circumcision party, as Paul's going to mention in chapter 3. And the nature of this, um, this opposition was likely very substantial. I say this because Paul says in verse 30, he, he compares his sufferings with their sufferings, his struggle with theirs. And while Paul was in Philippi, we know from Acts chapter 16 that uh, he and, and Silas, uh, they were openly harassed, they were attacked by crowds, they were publicly stripped, they were viciously beaten, and they were thrown in prison. Right? And if this was the way that they had treated Paul some years ago, it's reasonable to assume that the Philippian church had experienced a similar sort of treatment at the hands of those who hated the gospel, even as Paul wrote this. And so Paul writes to them, he says, don't be frightened by them. As citizens of heaven, you have no need to be spooked by your persecutors. That's not how we live. Take courage. Now, Christians in America do, and I suspect will in increasing measure, uh, suffer for the sake of Christ. But we don't face anywhere near the level of treatment that our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world face. Christians in America should be grateful that we have the amount of religious liberty and security that we do. And yet, fear ripples through the American church. One cultural commentator noted how common it was for him to receive emails or to, to receive posts on his blog from Christians who indicated that they couldn't identify themselves for fear of retaliation. 
Now, I'm not saying that, that, that there's not, uh, no such thing as retaliation against Christians or mistreatment against Christians. I'm not saying that at all, that, that it never happens, particularly in some fields. But I think it illustrates the point that uh, in many ways, uh, though we are free, many of us are fearful, fearful of the mob. I don't mean the mafia there, but you know, the, the Twitter mob, fearful of being canceled or losing our job fearful of losing our rights or a particular way of life. As this commentator uh, concluded, as a matter of law, Christians are free. As a matter of fact, in many contexts across the country, Christians are afraid. Well, such fear is not consistent with or worthy of a citizen of heaven, Paul says. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel involves a courage to endure these real consequences for the gospel. It's important if we're going to endure this, that, that we endure these consequences for the gospel. We don't mix up other things with the gospel, but it's going to take courage that when it comes to the gospel, we'll stand firm. Now, all of this, this Exhibition of gospel unity and gospel courage, even as they endure persecution, is said to be a sign of two things, destruction and salvation, sign of judgment forecast and salvation anticipated. The fact that the church will stand together and stand courageously against these enemies of the gospel is evidence that those who oppose Christ and those who oppose his gospel will ultimately be destroyed in the final judgment. Paul's saying that their, their, uh, ultimate, or their unsuccessful attempts to wipe out the church now points to the fact that God's power to fulfill his purposes and keep his church is greater than her, uh, the church's enemy's power to endure. He's saying that in this, there's a sign that, that those who oppose the gospel will be defeated. And the church's unity and the, the church's courage in opposition, which comes from God, the text says, also positively attests to the church's salvation. We see as the church stands in the midst of this that God is preserving his people. He's going to finish what he began in them, as he said in Philippians 1 verse 6. Now, a question we might be asking is, well, to whom is this a sign? To whom is, is the church's unity and the church's courage and persecution a sign? Well, there's some debate uh, as to how to translate verse 28. So if you've got the, the ESV Bible, uh, that's going to say one thing. Uh, New English translation, another uh, helpful translation, is going to say something a little differently. So the question is whether uh, the church's response to persecution is a sign to the opponents of their destruction and the church's salvation, or whether it's just a, a clear sign concerning them that they will be destroyed and that the church will be saved. So the question is, do the enemies of the gospel see and realize uh, as they look at the church being persecuted that this means our destruction? Well, I think the, the purpose of the sign is not to be a warning uh, uh, to the enemies of the gospel. I think it, it's to be a sign that reassures the church. That because God has sustained them as a one courageous people in their sufferings, it's meant to encourage the church that by the same power that God is preserving you, you shall prevail. So the drama of the, the suffering of the church uh, is meant to be a sign of the church's ultimate 
deliverance, the church's ultimate victory over the kingdom of darkness. And so we have Paul's basic command here to the Philippians, live as worthy citizens of heaven. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel by which you were brought into Christ's kingdom. And we've noted that the manner of living worthy involves gospel unity and gospel courage in the face of opposition. But that's easier said than done, right? It's entirely possible that the Philippians were facing threats to their lives and their livelihood. Sometimes, perhaps, people couldn't make it to church because they were spending time in the local prison. And is Paul then just saying to them, stick together and don't be scaredy cats? That's the command. Well, no. Just like it's Paul's pattern elsewhere, his encouragements here, his exhortations, his urging, it's laid upon a foundation of grace upon the prior action of what God has already done for those who would believe. And so our text calls us to gospel unity and gospel courage with a gospel motivation. So we see this in verse 29. For or because it has been granted to you, or it's been graciously given to you, we might say, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. All that Paul had said about living in a way that befits their heavenly citizenship is supported by these two gifts that Paul mentions they've received. The first gift we receive is faith. Now, the advantage of preaching at the evening service is that uh, Dale can get you ready uh, for uh, my sermons. Uh, And so, um, as Pastor Dale talked about this morning, we speak of, of faith being the gift of God, and it's the instrument by which we take hold of Jesus and his righteousness. So you might remember that, that he used uh, the example of, of um, uh, faith being like the fork, which, which brings the food to our mouth, right? Where we can feed on Christ. Uh, you might think as well of faith as being like uh, the, for, uh, the, the cord that you, you plug your, your dead phone into. Right? That cord, that USB cord, doesn't charge your phone. It doesn't revive the dead phone. But you need, your phone won't be charged without connecting it to that cord. Right? In a similar way, faith, faith connects us to our power source. It connects us to Jesus, in whom are found uh, every spiritual blessing. Now, faith is, is required. It's the instrument by which we take hold of that. And as Paul clearly states here, faith is a gift from God. Because we're sinners now, by nature, no one can trust in Christ for salvation uh, except it be given to them to believe, to to uh, receive Christ and and rest on Him and rely upon Him. Now, just as that's true for you and I, uh, it was true for the Philippian believers. They had received this marvelous gift of saving faith from God. They'd heard the gospel as Paul preached it, uh, and they had believed it, And by faith, they had become citizens of Christ's kingdom. But faith is not the only gift they've received. For it's also been granted or gifted to them that they should also suffer for Christ's sake. You might be wondering, did I hear that correctly? Yes, they had received the gracious gift of suffering for Christ's sake. Now, Christmas is in uh, the rearview mirror. I wonder if you maybe got any gifts that you were, uh, thought were so unwelcome that you wanted to return them. You're just hoping for a gift receipt. Well, suffering sounds like a gift we'd want to send back to the store. 
It doesn't sound like a gift. It doesn't feel like a gift oftentimes. John Calvin in, uh, is fair in his assessment when he suggests, and I'm slightly paraphrasing him, uh, paraphrasing him here, you'll find more people who would ask God uh, to take this gift of suffering, which marks us as his own, and leave them alone than you will people who embrace with eagerness the cross when it's presented to them. Alas, then, for their stupidity. And that last bit was Calvin. It wasn't me, so you can blame him. <laughs> What's Paul getting at? And why would someone like Calvin indicate that it's a mark of our own stupidity to spurn such a gift? Well, let's be clear what he does not mean. Paul's not talking about suffering that we bring upon ourselves. Uh, For example, the consequences uh, that we might reap for uh, breaking the law or being lazy at work or simply being nasty to other people. Nor is he uh, talking uh, about the Philippians seeking out suffering. Paul's clear here that the gift of suffering which is in view is the suffering which comes upon them as a result of their belonging to Jesus. It's the suffering that Paul says elsewhere will come upon all who seek to live a godly life in this rebellious world. And it's also clear that just as the gift of believing in Christ comes to every Christian... So the gift of suffering for Christ comes to every Christian. Maybe this will happen in small ways. Uh, Maybe it will happen in very costly ways in your life, but it happens all the same. And the first question is, in what sense then is suffering as a Christian to be understood as a gift? How is being mocked in the university lecture hall a gift? Or being bypassed for a promotion you were promised because you seem to take that whole religion thing too seriously? Or what, how about when circumstances uh, um, which demand that obedience to Christ mean that you have to deny yourself something much, that you uh, very much wanted, a particular happiness, a, a reputation, a relationship, and for the sake of Christ then you endure a real suffering? How is that, uh, those very real instances of suffering, a gift. Well, there's several ways that the Bible begins to answer this question. God uses suffering for Christ to change us so that we begin to look more like Christ. James 1, God uses our afflictions as a testimony to Christ. He uses our sufferings to demonstrate the genuineness of our faith, and it's a means by which we will bring glory to God, 1 Peter 1. Our suffering is an assuring mark of our being servants of Christ and adopted sons and daughters of God, as Paul says in Romans 8, 17. But the the feature of suffering as a Christian that I want to focus on is this, that suffering for Christ is a gift and that it joins us in Christ's work to make his salvation known to the world. Let me say that a different way, that that Christian sufferings are a gift because in them we're involved in God's mission to make Christ and and his gospel known to the world. That's the perspective on Paul's own sufferings for Christ that he's insisted upon already in this letter. He's able to receive his, his sufferings, his, his hardships with joy because through them, Jesus is being made known. So in suffering for Christ, we and the Philippians are granted the privilege of having the gospel displayed in us and through us. It, it, that, that happens by our testimony in suffering. 
uh, as we explain, this is why I endure. This is why it's worth it. It's, Christ is displayed by our example uh, as, as we uh, live out uh, the example of, of dying to self and dying and rising with Christ and enduring suffering for Him because He first endured suffering for us. Our suffering for Him, our taking up our cross after Him, rehearses in us, in a manner of speaking, the, the cross before the eyes of the world. But then the question is, well, why does Paul make this point? That suffering for Christ, like faith, is a gift. Why does he make this point here? It's because if suffering for Christ is a given of true Christian experience, Paul doesn't want the Philippians, and he doesn't want us to be surprised by it. Nor does he want us to to think when suffering for the name of Christ comes upon us that this is a sign of, of God forgetting about us or God forsaking us. Paul wants us to know that suffering because we're followers of Jesus, whether that's persecution or whether that's suffering for obedience, that this is God's gracious appointment. This is God's gift. Suffering for Christ, doing hard things, uh, bearing hard things for Jesus' sake is not a threat to our heavenly citizenship. It's an essential feature of our heavenly citizenship, this side of Christ's return as Jesus extends his kingdom. And so when we experience suffering as believers, we don't need to, in a panic, turn against each other uh, as if something is going wrong, as if the ship is going down. We don't need to panic or be frightened. This is what we've been called to in our union with Jesus. And it's a gift that we should suffer with him and be invited uh, in those sufferings to make Jesus known to the world. That our lives and in our sufferings, that 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 might be canvases upon which the glory and beauty of Christ and his gospel is presented to anyone who will look at us. And so Harvest, I don't know what your particular, uh, what it particularly looks like for each of you to suffer for Christ's sake. Is that some form of, of persecution or, or some form of, of just the suffering that comes with Christian obedience? But I want you to hear this. Take courage. In your sufferings for Christ, stand firm. Don't fear. And in this way, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of your heavenly citizenship in the gospel. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, make us more acquainted with the grace which, we, uh, which you have given to us that we should not only believe in your Son, but it's also been gifted to us that we should suffer for him and with him. And we admit that this is not an easy perspective uh, for us to maintain, particularly, Lord, as if we're honest, we live in a, in a culture that so values comfort and security. Lord, and we're affected by that. And we need your spirit to change the attitudes and desires of our heart. Make it, Lord, so that we could be like the apostles in the book of Acts who could endure public humiliation and physical abuse and who could go away rejoicing 
because they saw that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And as we grow in our understanding of this grace, Father, the grace that you have shown us, we pray that you would help us to reflect the beauty and the power of our heavenly citizenship. Make our unity to be conspicuous by the ways that we speak to each other, by the ways we honor each other, by the ways we encourage each other, by the ways that we work through differences with each other. We pray as well that you would work in us courage, that we would share in the sufferings of Christ and not be frightened in anything by those who would oppose you and your kingdom. We ask this, Lord, because we desire to reflect the beauty of your gospel in our citizenship, which is in heaven. And so we pray that you would do this for Christ's sake and for our good. Amen. As uh, we close our Lord's Day together, we're going to sing a song of praise, acknowledging Jesus as our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer, uh, the one who we can look to when we're sorrowful, uh, when we're oppressed. And so let's stand together and sing, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. <laughs>